Okay, Revelation chapter 13. Seven personages, seven main characters of Revelation were introduced to us, or will be introduced to us, in chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation after the sounding of the seventh trumpet judgment, which we heard back in chapter 11, verse 15. Now, we've already met five of those main characters in chapter 12, which we looked at last time. We met the sun-clothed woman who represents the nation of Israel. We met the male child who very clearly symbolized the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we met the great red dragon, which the Bible itself interpreted for us to be who? Satan, who tried to devour the woman's child both before and after his unique birth. Then we met Michael, who represented all of the holy angels of God. And Michael and his forces fought Satan and his demonic forces And he won, and then Satan and the demons were cast from the heavens down to earth. And last of all, we learned about Israel's believing remnant, those saved Jews, including the 144,000 from chapter 7, upon whom the great red dragon will vent his most severe anger during the tribulation days. Now in chapter 13, the final two main characters are presented to us. They make their official appearance. And one of them is called the beast out of the sea, who is to be a political leader. The other is the beast out of the earth, and he is going to be a religious leader. Now, the first beast, as you well know, because we've already talked about him quite a bit, is commonly referred to as who? The Antichrist. But in this chapter, we're going to learn quite a bit more about him. Now, the second beast, who we really haven't talked about very much, is called the false prophet. And these two, along with Satan, form what is called the satanic trinity or the unholy trinity. Satan, of course, is the influential driving power behind the Antichrist and the false prophet. Just as there is a heavenly holy trinity, which consists of three members, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is a counterfeit trinity, which consists of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. This is the unholy trinity and the conflict of the days uh, the last days on earth is going to be the war between the holy trinity and the unholy trinity now in our previous lesson which was entitled the angry red dragon we took a look at the first member of the unholy trinity we took a member a look at the um the great red dragon who is satan himself Now, today, in this lesson, we are going to learn more about the second and the third persons of the Satanic Trinity. First of all, we will discuss at quite some length the second person, who is the um, Antichrist. And he is portrayed in this chapter as kind of a giant sea monster. He comes out of the sea. He's a sea monster who obviously can live on the land. Now, as we go over the details about him, we are going to consider, first of all, the wonder of this beast, then the wound of the beast, then the worship of the beast, the warfare of the beast, and then finally we're going to look at a warning from John. So let's begin by talking about the uh, the beast out of the sea then, otherwise called the Antichrist or the false prince. We have the false prophet, and I call the Antichrist the false prince. Now, this portion of the scripture here in chapter 13 of Revelation is the central passage concerning the Antichrist. In chapter 12, 
we discussed Satan's one ruling passion, which is going to which is to destroy as many of God's people, chosen people, particularly the Jewish people, as he can. This is his ruling passion, especially during the time of the tribulation, to destroy as many of the Jewish people as he can before his time is up. Well, now in chapter 13, we're going to learn more about Satan's regent prince. We talked about his ruling passion. Now we're going to talk about his regent prince, the man Satan will use to diabolically persecute God's chosen people, the Jews, during the last three and a half years of the time known as the Great Tribulation. The Lord said, you know, in John 5:43, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye shall receive. And who was he speaking about there? None other than the Antichrist, Satan's coming false prince. Don't you love that sound? The newborn baby crying. Little John David. All right, so let's look at the wonder of the beast in verses 1 and 2. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. Well, the first thing that we want to notice about this beast out of the sea is his relationship with Satan. Verse 1 tells us that the beast has how many heads? Seven heads, and he has ten horns. And on his horns he has ten crowns. Well, if you remember back in Revelation 12, verse 3, we learned that the great red dragon, you can tell I had two weeks off because I actually colored the dragon in. We learned that the great red dragon, who represents Satan, was also seen by John as having how many heads? Seven heads and ten horns. So, whatever Satan is, in his character and in his nature and in his personality, so this beast out of the sea is also going to be. Now, another thing that we learn about this second member of the Satanic Trinity, if we jump ahead, if you'd move over to chapter 17... And look at verse 3. The second thing we learn is that he is scarlet in color. Scarlet is another name for what? Red. Same color. Scarlet or red. And this again, as with the seven heads and the ten horns, connects this second beast, the Antichrist, with who? With Satan. Because Satan was the great red dragon. So they're the same color. That speaks about blood. You know, they have killed so many of God's people. Now, when the Lord Jesus was here upon earth, he was able to say, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Likewise, the Antichrist, who is the counterfeit Christ, the counterfeit true Christ, is going to be able to say, he that hath seen me hath seen my Father, the devil. The first beast of Revelation chapter 13 commonly is commonly referred to, as we've already said over and over again, as the Antichrist. And that is a biblical name which appears five times in the New Testament. All five of those times happen to be in the epistles of John. 
And they were written, of course, by the same John who recorded this book here of Revelation. Now, in the epistles, First and Second John, actually it doesn't talk about it in Third John, but First and Second John, John was mainly concerned with talking about the manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist which is prevalent in the world and always has been, but will be particularly prevalent in the last days. However, here in Revelation, when he talks about the Antichrist, he is predicting the embodiment of the spirit of Antichrist in a person. And that's the difference. Now, the prefix anti literally means two things in Greek. It means against and it means in place of. Now, both of these meanings will perfectly describe the true motive of the anti-Christ. Because he's not only going to be against Christ, but he is going to be the counterfeit Christ. Which means he is going to seek to be in the place of Christ. Through this man, Satan is going to, he will desire and he will actually receive the worship of men for himself. Whereas, where should the worship of men really go? It should go to the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only created men, but gave his life to redeem them from their sinful condition and from eternal separation from a holy God. Counterfeiting God's work has always been the effort of Satan. It's been his continual work down through the ages. And his masterpiece of counterfeit work is going to appear when he raises up this man to be a substitute for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will be, this man will be accepted worldwide for at least a short period of time. Now there are a number of other names for the Antichrist given to us in the scripture. Actually, there are quite a few names for this man. He is called, for example, the Wicked One in Psalm 10. He's called the Little Horn of Daniel 7. He's called the King of Fierce Countenance in Daniel 8. The Prince That Shall Come in Daniel 9. A Vile Person, Daniel 11. Actually, Daniel talks a lot about this man, as you can see. He's called the Willful King in Daniel 11, 36. That Man of Sin, the Son of Perdition, and that Wicked One in 2 Thessalonians 2. And... Uh, He's called a a number of other names as well, which I have in your notes. So this man is going to be the most sinful man who will ever, ever have lived. The most sinful of all. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 really tells us, you know, succinctly about his conduct when it says that he will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he, as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, who do you think he's possessed by? Obviously, Satan. It's uh, interesting that some Bible scholars suggest, and I guess I would tend to agree with them here, that based on this scripture, that they, they think that the Antichrist will actually have the uh, presumptuous audacity to actually enter into the tribulation temple and go into the holy of holies and sit himself right down on the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant because it does say that he sitteth in the temple of god showing himself to be god and of course we know it was above the mercy seat that god showed himself presented his glory to the people of israel 
And I, I actually would think that that's what he will do. I mean, even Jesus Christ in his humanity would not do that. Now, the first thing that we note about the Antichrist from John's description here in verse 1 of chapter 13 is that John calls him a what? He's a beast. Now, there are two words for beast in the Greek language. One speaks about a beast of burden, such as a horse or an ox or a camel. The other word, therion, speaks about a beast of prey, and it is used for wild animals, such as wolves, lions, tigers, leopards, bears, you know, that sort of thing. Animals who survive by catching and then eating other animals. Now, the Greek word which is used for the Antichrist in verses 1 and 2 is which word do you think? Right, the beast of prey, the second word. And this fact tells us that this man is going to be malicious and destructive as well as very ferocious. He will be unfriendly untamed and intimidating, although initially he will do very well at disguising his true nature. The Antichrist, we must remember, will not be easily recognizable at first. I mean, he's not going to appear on the scene as an evil ogre who is, um, you know, in open and direct opposition to Christ. That is not going to be his way. Instead, he's going to come upon the world initially as a brilliant, smooth-talking, wonderful, charismatic individual who will actually oppose Christ by pretending to be Christ. Very, very subtle. Now, a frequently asked question with regard to the Antichrist concerns his nationality or his you know, racial background. In verse 1, John tells us that the beast rises up out of the sea. And because throughout the scriptures, the Gentile nations of the world are often presented to us as a troubled sea, and because the sea is symbolic of peoples and nations and the masses of humanity, many people say that the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile and not a Jew. And I suppose that I tend to go along with that. If I had to make a choice right now, I would say he's probably going to be a Gentile, not a Jew. Now, because of the mention of the sea in Scripture, which generally speaks of the Mediterranean Sea, many also assume that the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile who will arise out of one of the Mediterranean countries. Daniel 8, 9 uh, speaks about the little horn. Remember, this is one of the other names for the Antichrist. And he says that the little horn, the Antichrist, is going to come out of one of the four horns of the he-goat. You don't have to worry about this, but one day maybe you want to study Daniel if you never have. But one of the four horns coming out of the he-goat is the little horn, the Antichrist. And when we study Daniel, we learn that the he-goat and its four horns both symbolize the Grecian Empire, the Greeks. And therefore, many Bible scholars, or maybe some Bible scholars, suggest that the Antichrist is not only going to be a Gentile out of one of the Mediterranean countries, but that he is going to be Greek. <laughs> I hope they're wrong. <laughs> However, Daniel 9.26 refers to him as the prince of the people that shall come. And that reference is a reference to the fact that he is going to be related to the ethnic group which came 
and destroy Jerusalem. And what group of people do we know from history? Yes, that, that was the Romans. So others say that the Antichrist is going to be a Roman based on Daniel 9.26. Yet over in Daniel 11.37, we are further told that the Antichrist is not going to regard the God of his fathers. And some, based upon this verse, have proposed that this means he's going to be Jewish. So how in the world can we resolve all three of these apparent contradictions? Well, we just simply do not know at this point in time. But neither, remember, did men understand how the Messiah could be born in Bethlehem of Judea and yet come out of Egypt and yet be known as a Nazarene from Galilee, right? This is the counterfeit Christ. So possibly all three of these things will be true. How? We just don't know at this point in time. Maybe he will be a Greek born in Rome, I should say. Let's say let's say he's a Roman born in Greece. I like that better. <laughs> and maybe he will also have Jewish blood that he keeps hidden from the world. Perhaps he will be Greek and Roman and Jewish. All three. Maybe he will be a composite man who represents all of the people of the world so that for God's purposes, he is qualified to be the embodiment of all sinful men. That makes sense to me, doesn't it to you? Now, regardless, however, of his nationality, it's obvious that the beast out of the sea will be a real person. He will be a human being, and he won't just be a prevailing attitude or an influence, which is what some teachers of the Bible would tell you that, no, he's not a person. He's just going to be an influence or a power of some kind. Neither is he going to be a supernatural being like an angel. Verse 18, which we're going to talk about, Lord willing, later on in this lesson this morning, tells us that his number is what? You all know. 666. And that is a, the number of a man. It is not the number of an angel. It is not the number of a force or a power or an influence of some kind. So we do believe this will be a literal man. And he will, about sometime in the middle of the tribulation, actually be possessed by Satan. Now, as we've already mentioned, the seven heads and the ten horns demonstrate the beast's relationship to the great red dragon, Satan. More than that, they also demonstrate his relationship to the revived Roman Empire, which will be in existence in the last days. Now, Daniel's fourth beast, usually we teach Daniel before we teach Revelation because a background of the book of Daniel is really very helpful when studying Revelation. So maybe over the summer, those of you who have not studied Daniel would like to do that. We do have tapes. It was the first study we ever did in this Bible study. Well, Daniel's fourth beast of chapter 7 of Daniel represents the Roman Empire. And the ten horns of that beast, I don't know if you can see them here. I wish I had a pen. Right there are the ten horns coming out of that head there. They are predicted to be the revived Roman Empire of the last days, which will exist, which will be comprised of ten kings or ten nations. Now, a comparison of this fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation's beast out of the sea that we're looking at right here in chapter 13 show that the two are definitely related. So the beast is a leader. This beast coming out of the sea, the Antichrist, is a leader 
who is symbolic of the kingdom over which he will rule. Both of them are beasts. They're, you know, they're almost identified as being the same, one and the same. Now, in Revelation 17, 12, we, if you want to go over there for a minute, Revelation 17, 12, we're told that the ten horns which John saw are ten kings. And it tells us that these ten kings had no kingdom when John wrote the book of Revelation at the end of the first century, but they were predicted to receive their power as kings when? For one hour, that means a very brief period of time, for one hour with the beast. So the ten horns of the beast out of the sea, the ten horns of the Antichrist, represent ten kings. But they were not kings who had a kingdom in John's day. They rather will be kings or rulers of nations. You know, kings are identified with their nations. They will be ten nations or ten kings in the days of the beast. And this speaks of a ten-nation confederacy which will occupy much of the same territory as the Roman Empire once did. And that speaks primarily of Europe. Now, this is what Bible expositors commonly refer to as the revived Roman Empire. And it will be headed up, it will be ruled over by the Antichrist. In Daniel 7, 8... A little horn, remember I've told you that's one of his names, a little horn arises out of the ten horns. You can see his face right there in the middle. A little horn arises out of those ten horns of the composite fourth beast of Daniel's dream of chapter 7. The ten horns correspond there to the ten toes on Nebuchadnezzar's statue of Daniel chapter 2. And both the ten horns on Daniel's fourth beast and the ten toes on Nebuchadnezzar's statue both refer to the revived Roman Empire of the last days. Now the little horn then is going to arise out of this Roman Empire which will consist of how many kings or how many nations? Ten. And he will rule over them. Now, we are told other places in Daniel that three of these kings or three of these nations will rebel against him. But he's going to subdue them immediately. Now, there are going to be three main areas that the Antichrist is going to seek to develop. He's going to seek to develop a one-world monetary system, the whole world using the same money type of money. He's going to seek to develop a one world government and he's going to seek to uh, develop a one world, what's the third one? Religion, exactly. Now this idea of a united Europe, a revived Roman Empire, has become a reality in our day in the European community. And I really saw this my mother got our family for a Christmas present, a trip to Europe. And so I've just recently been in Europe over the holidays with my family, and I really saw how the Europe, how Europe has become... I mean, we didn't even have to show passports as we crossed over borders. The only time was when we crossed the English Channel. But other than that, we went from one country to another. 
And when I was there the last time, many years ago, I had to get my passport out at every border. Now, the goal of those behind the Euroland idea, and all over Europe now, in airports, and you know, they don't have a lot of billboards, which is nice, on highways like we do. But every time we were in cities and different places, we would see signs that said uh, Euroland. I mean, you know, the, then they would talk about the Euro, the monetary system that was coming into effect, and they were, they'd say stuff like Viva Euroland. I mean, you know, they're really trying to prepare the people for this idea. So the goal behind it is the creation of a Europe without any national rivalries and a Europe that will be the top competitor on the world market. Now, it's interesting that this political confederation was begun in its infant form the very year that Israel became a nation again. Isn't that interesting? 1948. In March 1948, the Brussels Treaty was signed by Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, and the United Kingdom. This was an agreement to help one another in the event of outside intervention. One month later, the Organization for European Economic Cooperation was set up to encourage cooperation between the European nations in regard to economic matters. By March 1957, six and this is an interesting number, six European countries, France, West Germany, this was still when Germany was split, Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg signed the Treaty of Rome. Six countries signed the Treaty of Rome, and the European Economic Community, called the EEC, was established. Very interesting. Well, since that time, many other important steps towards European unification have taken place. For example, um, all the tariffs. There's been an abolishment of the tariffs on trade between the different members of the EEC. A European Parliament has been established. European passports have been issued. And then the euro came into effect on January 1st of this year. By July 1st, 2002, the national currencies of all the members in the EEC will be completely withdrawn from public circulation. They're going to give two years for everybody to get used to using the euro instead of the mark or the franc or the whatever their monetary system is. So they're going to have a, um, a European monetary system as well. Well, then in... Um, other years, 72, 81, 86. Anyway, since those original six countries were in the EEC, six more have been added. So there is now today a total of 12. That's why there are 12 stars on that coin right there. Today there are 12. At the time of the Antichrist, there will be 10. I don't know what will happen, but there will be 10. You can count on God's word. January 1st of this year, I did have the privilege of being in Europe when the euro officially went into effect, we did try to get some. We, we were naive enough to think that they'd actually have some of that money that we could get and bring back as a souvenir. So instead of showing you transparency, I could have shown you <laughs> the new money, the money that they would have. But it isn't ready yet for circulation. They're going to do this gradually, as I said. So they didn't have any for us on that day, and we left the next day. So the euro is the common money which will be used by the countries which are currently in the membership of the EEC with the exception of Great Britain. Right now they are holding out and refusing to give up their pound for the euro. But I think in time 
have to give in to the pressure, and they also will use the euro. So no longer is it going to be necessary, as we had to do, to stop at every border before you went into another country and exchange your money. That won't be necessary anymore. So it's a good thing, you know, to the Europeans, it's, it's wonderful. Wouldn't it be awful if every time we went into another state we had to exchange all our money and show a passport? You know, you can see why they would be behind all this. Although it was very, I'm getting off, but our, it was interesting that our guide was German. She was very, very intelligent, but she was totally lost, did not know anything about the Bible, and yet she kept telling us things that I thought, wow, this is really tying right in with the Bible. But she did say, you know, I'm not really sure that this thing is going to work because I see already that there is too much power going into just the few leaders out of the, the capital. The um, political capital for the EEC is in Belgium. And she said, I see how they're already dictating to us what we what we need to do. And they're dictating to the farmers what crops they want them to grow. And she said, I'm not so sure this is going to be a good thing. And I thought, you are right, lady. Well, the new European currency is a monetary system which is based on the American dollar. It's almost equivalent to the American dollar, and it is ultimately designed to replace the dollar on the world market. Eventually... The whole world is going to be pressured into using this global monetary system. And this will truly make it a lot easier for transition to the Antichrist system of buying and selling via the use of his number implanted in the foreheads or hands of those who will be willing to accept the mark of the beast. And we'll talk more about that later. Now, the beast is also said to have seven heads. In Revelation 17, 9... We're told that the seven heads are seven mountains. Now, this is strange. Seven mountains on which the woman... Now, the woman in this context is not Israel. This is a completely different woman. The woman in this context is the false religious system. She is the apostate church. She's the great harlot. We'll talk about her when we get to Revelation 17. So the Antichrist is seen, and she's sitting on the Antichrist, okay? He's the beast with the seven heads. She's sitting on him. The Antichrist is seen here in this verse, 17.9, to be connected to Rome, because Rome is specifically in all the world known as the city of seven hills. The worldwide apostate religious system, now I didn't say this, the Bible says this, is going to have its center headquarters in Rome. But there is yet another interpretation for the beast's seven heads, and this is found in Revelation 17, verse 10. So just go down one more verse, and we're told that the seven heads speak of seven kings. Now, this is not the ten kings, okay? I know this gets very confusing, so you'll have to go over your notes and maybe very slowly. There are 16 pages of notes, by the way. So you got your homework cut out for you. Well, this verse, 1710, goes on to tell us that five of these seven kings are, what? Fallen, while one is, and the other is not yet come. See, now this is written, John is writing this from where he is in the first century. And then he says, but when that one cometh, he must continue a short space. Now, these seven kings, then, are seen as successive, you know, one after another. In other words, one king follows another. And so that's different from the ten kings, 
you know, the ten horns with the ten crowns, because they are all joined together at one time with the little horn, the Antichrist, ruling over them. So the seven kings are successive, whereas the ten kings are ruling at one time. Now the question then is, who are the seven successive kings? Now, there have been many explanations, many um, suggestions for this, but it seems most likely that they represent the seven Gentile world kingdoms, which will have, by the time of the Great Tribulation, dominated the world scene. Revelation 17.10 tells us that five of these seven kings are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. But when he comes, he will continue, you know, he will rule for a short space, which means a brief time. Well, from where the Apostle John stood in history, five of the world kingdoms had already come and gone. Five had already fallen. They were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And the one that is, the Gentile power which was in existence when John wrote Revelation, which was Rome, exactly. And the yet-to-come Gentile power will be the revived form of the Roman Empire of the latter days, the one we just talked about, which I believe is the EEC that we see coming about right now. Verse 11 of chapter 17, still go down one more verse, we're in chapter 17, tells us that the beast is going to arise out of this seventh king. Now that's the revived Roman Empire. And that he will actually be considered the eighth because he's going to have a kingdom of his own. The Antichrist is going to have a world kingdom of his own for a while. So it would seem then that the seven heads very possibly represent the seven successive stages of human government. Now, it is also possible that John's vision of this beast with seven heads was the composite beast of Daniel's prophetic dream back in chapter 7. Daniel's dream foretold of four um, of the Gentile world powers from his time all the way until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when Israel's redemption would finally occur. Now, the four beasts which he saw in that dream had a total of seven heads. There was one for the lion, one for the bear, one for the fourth dreadful beast, and the beast that represented the Grecian Empire had a total of four heads. So if you add those heads together, there is a total of seven. Now this could mean that the Antichrist and his kingdom will be a composite of all of the previous Gentile kingdoms and, and uh, their kings, which have ruled over the world in the time period known as the times of the Gentiles. The beast himself is seen as having seven heads because he is going to be the embodiment of all the strength and all the character of all the past world empires. Furthermore, he is going to be empowered by none other than the great red dragon Satan, who also has how many heads? Seven. So you see they're all tied together. If you understand nothing else, understand that the beast, the Antichrist, has seven heads, just like the revived Roman Empire has seven heads, just like the total composite of all the past evil world empires, total seven, and the dragon has seven. So you see who's been ruling the world all along, right? Satan. Now, 
Of course, God is overseeing everything. He's orchestrating the whole thing for his purposes. Now, we must also remember that throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven symbolizes completeness. So the seven heads could very possibly indicate, in addition to all these other suggestions, could they, it could indicate the universal dominion of the Antichrist kingdom. Did you know that there are seven continental land masses in the world? Was that coincidence? <laughs> Who made the world? God. All right, he made it perfect. There are seven land masses. There's North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, and Antarctica. So this may symbolize his world dominion. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about the wonder of the beast. That was quite a bit. You're wondering, how is she going to get through the whole chapter since she's only gotten through verse 2? I don't know how I'm going to do it. <laughs> Let's look at verse 3, and this is having to do with the wound of the beast. And this is where everybody always gets real interested. Okay, let's read about the wound of the beast. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Revelation 13.3 that we just read here, along with, now I just want to go back to Revelation 17, verse 8. These two verses have led many people to believe that Satan is actually going to raise the Antichrist from death. That he will be killed and, this, and Satan will raise him back to life. What does Revelation 17, 8 say? It says, the beast that thou sawest was and is not. You know, he was alive, now he isn't. And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, many godly Bible teachers and preachers take the view that the Antichrist is going to be killed. How? Look at chapter 13, verse 14, the end of the verse. He's going to be killed, it tells us, by a sword. Probably an assassination attempt there, or an assassination. He's going to be killed by a sword. And these many godly Bible teachers tell us that then he is going to be miraculously brought back to life by Satan. Now, many people in the early church actually believed that Satan would resurrect from the dead someone like Judas Iscariot or Nero. And that this person that Satan resurrected from the dead would become the Antichrist. However, the Antichrist will have already been on the scene before his death wound occurs. You know, somewhere the death, the assassination of the Antichrist is going to occur somewhere around the middle of the tribulation. However, we know he comes on the scene three and a half years earlier, right? All right, think with me. So Satan would have to resurrect, if the early church was right and said that Judas or Nero was going to be resurrected from the dead, Satan would have to resurrect Judas at the beginning of the tribulation, then Judas would be killed in the middle, and then Satan would have to resurrect him again. So you see, this would involve two resurrections. The main problem with this view, as far as I'm concerned, is that Satan is not a life giver. Never in the scripture is Satan seen having the power to raise people from death. 
Instead, Satan is the destroyer of man. He deals with death. He does not deal with life. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who raises the dead. You know, even Elijah and Elisha did not raise the dead with their own power. They both prayed fervently to the only one who they knew could raise the dead, and that was God, of course, who restored life. It is going to be the voice of the Son of God which is going to call out those who are in the graves, those who are saved under the resurrection of life and those who are not saved under the resurrection of damnation. So I don't believe that Satan has the power to raise anyone back to life. Other men of God point out to the point to the fact that verse 3 says that only one of the seven heads of the beast is as it were wounded unto death the beast has seven heads right well only one is wounded to death so they conclude that since the seven heads of the beast refer probably to the seven successive empires which have dominated the world and oppressed the jews that this apparent resurrection from from death speaks of a revival of one of those heads, one of those past world empires. And therefore, most Bible expositors, the most conservative Bible scholars who take Revelation literally, as we are doing, suggest that this is a prediction of the fact that the Roman Empire is going to be revived. That's what they say. And we've already said that the beast is, the Antichrist is identified with his empire. So the revival of power in the European countries, which were once part of the mighty Roman Empire, will be attributed to the Antichrist's amazing powers. And this might, in fact, be what is meant. However, history does tell us that the Roman Empire never really did die. It was not, the Roman Empire was never slain by a sword. So you see the slain by the sword tells us that not only is this talking about the empire, but it also is talking about man. Roman Empire was never conquered. No other empire ever came along and defeated Rome. Rome just kind of faded away due to its own internal corruption. Actually, it just kind of fell apart. Did you know that the little, is it a nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty? Is that what you call a nursery rhyme? Humpty Dumpty was actually written about the Roman Empire. Um, it never it never really did die. It was never conquered. It just kind of slipped off the wall and <laughs> broke into a bunch of pieces. And one day somebody is going to put it back together again, right? Not a good one, bad one. But anyway, the Roman Empire still continues to live on. It never really died. It never really took that last breath because it still lives on today in the nations of Europe. And it lives on through the Roman Catholic Church, which is a worldwide very dominant power. And it lives on through the worldwide influence of Roman government. Um, It lives on through Roman philosophy. Roman architecture, the Roman numeral system, the influence of European civilization and language and and dress, and the road systems and trade unions, etc. So it never really died. Rome still lives worldwide today. Now because the beast, the Antichrist, is identified, as I said, almost synonymously with the kingdom over which he rules, will rule, the revived Roman Empire, I believe... That the man himself, whoever he will be, 
is going to be just like his empire, just like the kingdom over which he rules. You see, as I just said, Rome never really did what? It never really did die. Likewise, I do not believe that the Antichrist will really die. Everything that Satan has attempted to do ever since the beginning of time has been a deception. He is the great deceiver. Furthermore, he is the great counterfeiter. He will empower the Antichrist so as to be his masterpiece counterfeit, Jesus Christ. He will enable him to possess great power so that many people will be deceived into thinking that he is indeed the true Christ. However, you see, he could not be a perfect counterfeit Jesus Christ unless he was also able to stage a resurrection from the dead. And this, I believe, will be the great delusion, the big lie. Would you turn to 2 Thessalonians 2.11? 2 Thessalonians 2.11. The Apostle Paul here is speaking about the Antichrist, and he said this. He said, even him, the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and what? Lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause... Shall God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That's not the lie of evolution. These people already believe that lie. This is a new lie in the end times under the reign of the Antichrist. Those people who will refuse to acknowledge the true resurrection of Jesus Christ and be saved will fall, they will be deceived by the fake resurrection of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is empowered, remember, by the father of lies. Jesus Christ is truth. Antichrist is lie. We could call him the lie. That could be another name for him. His, Christ's counterpit, counter part <laughs> his counterpart in the satanic trinity therefore is going to embody not truth like he did but he is going to embody falsehood he will lie you know when he promises israel that he's going to protect her and when he signs that false peace treaty with her which he never intends to keep he will lie to get into his position of power he will perform we're told by paul lying wonders in order to deceive the masses he will lie when he takes credit for defeating the armies of gog and magog which come down from the north that he didn't defeat at all god defeated them but his greatest delusion of all, I believe, will be his false resurrection from the dead. How he will accomplish this, I do not know. But he will. And all those people, you know, perhaps virtual reality will have something to do with it. I don't know. But he's going to stage a false resurrection, in my opinion. And all the people who have refused to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ's true resurrection and his true defeat over death and sin are going to be given over by God himself to believe the lie of the 
Antichrist's counterfeit resurrection. And by the way, please notice that verse 3 gave us a hint about this all along because it says there, John says, And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death. In other words, it was a wound which only appeared to be a wound unto death. Now, I know you will read and hear many people who say otherwise, but all I can do at this point is give you my opinion on this, and I do not believe he will really resurrect from the death, from dead, from the dead. <laughs> Keep saying that wrong. From the dead. Let's look now at the worship of the beast, and for this we have to look at verse 4 and then jump down to verse 8. The worship of the beast. Verse 4, And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, this is the people of the world, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now go down to verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. While the beast is blaspheming the eternal and true triune God, millions of people around the world will actually be worshiping... Oh, I'm the wrong one. They will actually be worshiping Satan and his human agent, the Antichrist. The world by this time will be totally convinced, and when we speak of the world or earth dwellers, we're speaking about the unsaved people, will be totally convinced that there is no one who has ever existed who is as amazing and as powerful as the beast. They will have already marveled at how he was able to kill the two witnesses in Israel when no one else was even able to touch them, and they will have marveled at how he... Um, how they think he defeated the mighty army from the north, you know, the army of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But his apparent resurrection from the dead by a sword, I think someone will get close to him and stab him with a sword or something, or they'll stage that. Maybe they'll have a guy that does it on purpose but doesn't really kill him. I don't know. But this will have really, really convinced the world, even the most skeptical unbeliever, that the beast is truly, truly unique and he is worth worshiping. So in worshiping the beast out of the sea, who will the people really be worshiping? Exactly, Satan himself. And this will be what some have called Satan's mini-millennium. And it truly will be many because it only lasts for three and a half years. And even in that time, there's a lot of unrest among the nations. Now, this is what Satan has wanted, isn't it? From the very beginning, since his initial rebellion against God, he has wanted to usurp God's place. And he has wanted to be worshipped in the place of God. And his desire will, at least in part and for a little bit of time, be realized during the last half of the tribulation. Ever since Nimrod, remember Nimrod was the one who built the Tower of Babel, ever since him, powerful, egotistical, selfishly motivated men have attempted to rule the world. In addition to some of the men and the empires that are mentioned to us in the Bible, there have been men like Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, there have been organizations like the League of Nations, the United Nations, communism, and the Illuminati Society, and others, which have all tried and failed to bring about a one-world government. Today, 
the international banking and business establishment seems intent on such a goal, on establishing, you know, a one-world government. But it will not be until the tribulation period that there will be a one-world government. And even then, it is going to prove to be a very short-lived, satanic, humanistic, joint effort in futility. The only world government which will ever succeed is that which will be ruled over by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. After merely three and a half years of his reign, I mean, that's a very short reign, (laughs) three and a half years, the Antichrist will have only succeeded in causing all of the nations of the world to come together for the biggest world war ever fought in human history. And this is going to be... God's demonstration of how sinful man cannot rule himself, even aided by Satan, just can't come about. Well, Satan will be worshipped, we're told in verse 8, by everyone whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So the final world apostasy is going to be global Satan worship, except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Everyone else will actually be engaged in Satan worship. All right, let's look at the warfare of the beast. Verses 5 to 7. And there was given unto him, this is again the Antichrist, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, that's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. I'm going to skip a lot of this, which you can read in your notes because of time's sake I do need to get on to the false prophet but here we're told that everything in any way that relates to God is going to be the subject of the beast's blasphemous tongue I mean he's got a wicked wicked tongue of course it's the tongue of Satan Um, he's going to not only boldly curse I mean you think you hear profanity today This will be nothing in comparison to what the Antichrist will do. He's going to boldly curse God. It tells us he's going to curse God's tabernacle, which is heaven itself. He's going to curse all the heavenly powers and all the saints of God, alive and dead. And um, this will just absolutely be the worst blasphemy men will have ever heard. And the sad part about it is that men are going to follow in his footsteps, and they too are going to be blasphemers. It tells us in 2 Timothy 3.2, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, what? Blasphemers. So men will, just like the Antichrist, just like Satan, be blaspheming God. And I can, you can see this when we get to one of the woe judgments where hail is coming down on the people and they're dying and they're They've got their fist in God's face, and they're cursing him. It's incredible. Well, what else will the Antichrist do at this point in time? In the, this is all around the middle of the tribulation. It tells us that after his fake resurrection from, the death, from, from death, he is going to go after the believers. Verse 7 says that he's going to make war with the saints and that he's going to overcome them. Of course, 
God is, has his 144,000 sealed Jews. Nobody will be able to harm them. And then all those who have run into the wilderness to seek safety, and they are provided for by God himself. Remember, we read about that last time. They will be safe. But all the rest, many of them, God will permit to be overcome by the Antichrist. But we know, if we look ahead to Revelation 15, 2, that they are only really overcome for a very short time. They are only overcome physically. They are not overcome spiritually because we find them in heaven and they gain the eternal victory over the Antichrist and over Satan. Actually, when the Antichrist kills the saints of God, he is only ushering them into glory, so he really has no victory at all. Well, we are also told in verse 7 about the worldwide extent of the Antichrist's power. It says, and power was given to him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This is a little bit different than when we read about other worldwide things, because notice it does not say all people here whereas it has in the other places. And this indicates to us that not all people will be under his power because those who believe in Jesus Christ will not be under his, in his dominion. Okay, um, let's go on now. I want to talk about the warning from John, which is in verses 9 and 10. It's, he says, If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Verse 9 contains for us the same pleading warning that we had heard seven times back in chapters 2 and 3. Except there is a little phrase that is missing this time. Remember back in those chapters, we heard over and over again at the end of each one of the seven letters to the seven churches, uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the, what? Churches. Well, here now, in the middle of the tribulation, all we have is, if any man have an ear, let him hear. Why do you think the little phrase, what the Spirit saith unto the churches, is missing? Because the church isn't here to hear. <laughs> the church is going to be in heaven. And that's a very good pre-tribulation rapture scripture support. That little phrase is missing, and that indicates the church is in heaven. Well, in verse 10, uh, John talks about the divine law of retribution, which is basically, I'm going to skip that, let you do that in the notes, but basically it is uh, what sort of a man... So with that shall he also reap. It's kind of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you slay somebody, you're going to be slain by the sword. If you take them into captivity. And then he gives a little encouraging word to the saints at the end when he says, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. He's just basically saying, warning the saints during the tribulation, have patience and keep the faith because even if they kill your body, all will be well. So it's just a little word of encouragement there. Now let's move on, if we will, to talk about the beast out of the earth. Uh, during the tribulation period, Satan is going to be attempting to take such a captive hold upon the world that Jesus Christ at his turn, a return, will not be able to get it back again, won't be able to get back the world. Now, should this happen, then in effect, Satan would conquer God's plans for the redemption of the world and for the redemption of Israel, God's wife. And this would make God a liar. 
because all of his promises of scripture would go unfulfilled. So Satan, you see, would succeed in bringing God down to his level because Satan is a liar. The tribulation period then is going to be Satan's last effort to gather the world as a global unit under his power and make it his invincible kingdom which cannot be destroyed or conquered by Christ. And in order, we know he fails, of course, but in order to pull this off, Satan plans to put the whole world, as we've just seen, under a dictator, the beast out of the sea, whom he himself will then possess. And then he will pull together ten nations to serve as co-regents over which this dictator is ruler. And this will be a very powerful um, nation, the revived Roman Empire. But this political antichrist, this false prince, will not be alone in Satan's devious plan. Satan also is going to have a religious antichrist who will be a potent, a powerful, and intimate companion of the first beast. This religious antichrist will present for us the third member of the satanic trinity. He will be uh, the counterfeit Holy Spirit. That will be his function, his ministry. You know, the Holy Spirit's primary ministry is to point people to Christ, the true Christ. This religious antichrist, here he is, the false prophet there, um, he is going to point the world to the first beast in order that the world will have a one world religion in which they worship the beast. And, of course, when they worship the beast, they are actually worshiping Satan himself. All right, let's, as we consider the false prophet, we're going to look at his mask, his ministry, his magic, and his mark. So let's look, first of all, at his mask. He wears a very deceptive mask in verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. The first thing to notice is that John calls him another beast. And again, um, you know that the word beast here is not an animal of burden, but it speaks about a vicious animal of prey. Now remember what we said, the um, word anti means, it means not only against, it can also mean in the place of. It will essentially take two men for Satan to attempt to fill the true position of the true Christ. And even then, both men are going to prove to be impotent when the Lord Jesus Christ himself arrives on the scene. However, for a short period of time, the world is going to be utterly deceived by these two imposters who will come at first pretending to be in the place of Christ, but who will really be very much against Christ. Well, the second beast arises out of the earth or the land. And because the land in the scripture usually refers to Israel, many assume that he is going to be Jewish. Now, this does not necessarily have to be true. I really do not know. Many think that he will be Jewish. Others do not think that that gives us enough of a clue. And we have no other clues in the scripture, like we did with the Antichrist, about his national um, identity or his racial identity. Now, this man will imitate, we do know this, he will imitate the true Lamb of God. And this is seen by John's description where he says that he has two horns like what? 
like a lamb. He will appear, you see, like a lamb. He will appear gentle, harmless, and innocent. He will appear clean and wholesome and quiet and kind, and nobody will be very frightened of him at first. Are you frightened of a lamb? No. And he will speak so meek and so lowly, and he will probably talk a great deal about judge not, that you be not judged, and just love everybody. But the truth of the matter will be that he will be wearing a very, very deceptive mask because he is really going to be speaking for Satan himself. Although he looks like a lamb, John says, how does he speak? He speaks as a dragon. This man, just like the dragon, the father of lies, who is going to be giving him his power and giving him his speeches, this man is also going to be speaking lies. Now, because of his docility and his seeming goodness, and because of his ability to perform great wonders, men are going to fall for him. They are going to believe him. You know, they did not believe the true Lamb of God. But this satanic masterpiece, false lamb, they will believe. And the Lord Jesus himself warned about this very thing in Matthew 7, verse 15, when he said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are what? Ravening wolves. They are beasts of prey. And he also had predicted this thing in um, the Olivet Discourse when he was telling his men about the signs which would precede his second coming. He said, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and they shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. These guys are going to be good at what they do. Satan's had a lot of years of practice at deceiving men. These guys are going to be really good. And if you and I were around, if we weren't elect, we would be deceived as well. Now, the second beast, therefore, will be the epitome of all the false prophets who have ever been, and therefore he is going to be another antichrist. So for a while, the world is going to be deceived by these two imposters of the true Christ, even in spite of the true Christ's warnings. They'll still be deceived. All right, let's consider his ministry. How much time have I got here? Not much. Okay. Uh, well, it, it does tell us that he's going to be empowered by Satan himself, and he's going to work hand in glove in power with the first beast. Uh, very possibly, let me just throw this in, he may be the leader... In the first three and a half years of the tribulation, he may very well be the leader of the apostate church, which is called the great harlot. When the first beast, the Antichrist, rises to his place of worldwide dominion, we are told that the Antichrist is then going to turn on the apostate church the harlot church, and he's going to destroy her. This is all in Revelation 17. He merely will have used the false church to gain his position. Remember, the false church is centered in Rome. He's going to use that church to gain his worldwide position of, you know, dominion, of rulership. But after he's used her, he's going to turn on her and destroy her. Well, the second beast, the false prophet, may have actually, you know, heading up this system, he could have been in uh, 
cahoots. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. He could have been in cahoots all along with the Antichrist and actually have assisted him in then destroying this harlot church. And then he will assist the Antichrist in causing men to worship him, the Antichrist. It's very clear that the second beast... You know, some say he has less power than the first beast because he has two horns, and the first beast had how many? Ten. Ten horns. Now seven heads. <laughs> but the second beast has two horns, and so they say, well, he doesn't have as much power because horns speak of power. But that's not true because we are told in verse 12 he exercises all the power of the first beast. The two horns speak of testimony. That's what he's giving. Two in the Bible speaks of testimony. He's given testimony to the Antichrist, whereas the ten horns of the Antichrist speak of territory. So that's the difference, territory and testimony. Well, they share in prominence and in leadership because the, um, both of them in 1920, Revelation 1920, are seen cast alive into the lake of fire. So we know these two guys are equal in power and they'll be equal in world dominion as they're serving together Satan. So when the apostate church is destroyed by Satan and the Antichrist, probably with the help of the false prophet, then the false prophet is going to offer the world something new to worship. And... This is going to be his counterfeit Holy Spirit ministry. The Holy Spirit came into the world not to exalt himself, but to exalt and point people to Jesus Christ. The false prophet is going to do the same thing for the Antichrist. He's not going to point to himself. He's going to point people to the Antichrist. And the question is, how will he accomplish this worldwide worshiping of the first beast? And that's what we are told in verses 13 to 15. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he, this is still the false prophet, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. His magic, I call it. The false prophet is going to be able to perform certain types of miracles by the power of who? Satan. Now, the miracles which he will perform, such as making fire come down from the sky onto the earth in the sight of men, is going to cause even the most skeptical of earth dwellers to believe that the one he is pointing to, to worship, is indeed Christ or or God. Now, although neither Satan nor demons can perform miracles of creation, They can, and they often do, manipulate the natural processes so as to produce unusual and unexplainable miracles. I mean, like, have you ever heard of levitation? 
where they can make things come up off the ground. Satan is capable. You know, Janus and Jambres, remember them? They were Pharaoh's sorcerers, Pharaoh's magicians. They were able to imitate many of the miracles of Moses, which Moses did in God's power. Therefore, we need to realize that all miracles are not necessarily evidence of a divine origin. Okay, you really need to be aware of that and not be tricked by some of the miracles that people are saying they perform today. They're not always come from God. Miracles must always be tested in relation to their purpose and their faithfulness to the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. Demonically, satanically produced miracles will especially be abundant in the last days, the Bible tells us. Christ said that these false Christs and these false prophets will show great signs and wonders. Imagine if the false prophet did call down a fireball from heaven. That would be a great sign, right? And people will say, oh, well, he must really be speaking for God, and he's pointing to the beast, so we better worship the beast. So once the false prophet has convinced men through his miracles that he speaks for sovereign authority, he's going to point them to the Antichrist and say, worship him because he is God. And then he's going to remind them how he resurrected from the dead, from that sword, and was also capable of raising from death a former world empire. You know, Rome, they'll give him credit for that. And then he will persuade men to make an image in the likeness of the first beast. And then through satanic trickery or demonic possession, he is going to cause that image to actually speak so that everyone will believe it is alive. Now, the word for life, look at this, and maybe if you write in your Bible, circle this so you'll remember it next time you come to this passage. The word for life there in the Greek is the word pnevma. That's where we get the word pneumonia, actually. It starts with the P, pnevma. Verse 15, where it says, And he had power to give life unto the image. The word literally does not mean life. The Greek word for life is zoe. That's where we get the word zoo, okay? This is not zoe. This is the word pnevma, and that means spirit. Spirit. Satan cannot give life, but he can command demons to enter into idols, and demons can speak. So this image will not truly possess created life, but it will possess spirit. And that spirit is going to be an evil spirit. It's going to be a demonic spirit, maybe even more than one. I don't know. You know, just as demons can use the vocal cords of men that they possess to speak through those men, this demon or demons will use the complicated audio equipment of this image. In order, you know, like a computer, they're going to use that voice in order to convey Satan's messages to the world. The messages will be coming from that idol direct from Satan. All right, that's all. Let's see. So anyway, those who refuse to worship this idol are going to either have to escape very, very quickly into some secluded spot or they are going to suffer martyrdom. It tells us that they will be killed if they do not worship 
the beast. All right, let's look now at the last verses, 16 to 18, his mark. And he, this is again the false prophet, causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Now, John is talking to the people living in the tribulation, okay? Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six, which is six, six, six. The false prophet is going to enforce the worship of the Antichrist by requiring all men, whether they're rich or poor, small or great, free man or slave, to demonstrate their allegiance to the beast by bearing a mark either on their right hand or on their forehead. Or actually it says in. Now, this will be a brand which will be mandatory for buying or selling. It will be extremely difficult to survive at all without this mark. No transaction of any kind will be legal unless all parties can display either on or in their foreheads or on their right hand this mark of the beast. Now, some people will manage to live off the land without the mark, but this remember, this is going to be extremely difficult because what has happened to the land and what will continue to happen to the land during the tribulation? I mean, there's already been famines and droughts and earthquakes and uh, fourth of the land was burned up and... Um, all kinds of awful things have happened to the land. The water's turned bloody, and we haven't even gotten to the vile judgments yet. And they will be continually occurring during the last three and I mean, they will be occurring during the last three and a half years. So it's going to be very tough to live off of the land. So many of those who will refuse the mark of the beast will suffer martyrdom or starvation. Now, the implanted registration is intended to be universal all over the world. Everybody will have to take this mark. And although the nature of the mark is not described for us, I think today we can already see the basic principle of it already on its way to a reality. The universal product code... I mean, every time you go to the store, Walmart or the grocery store, or go to purchase anything, you see somewhere on the item you are purchasing the universal product code, which we call the UPC code. This product, of course, is used. It's very smart. Men made it for good, but I believe it's going to be used for evil eventually. It is used for product pricing. I mean, it's a whole lot easier. I used to work in a grocery store, and I used to have to price every little can, every little thing with the price. Now you don't have to do that. And it's also used for inventory purposes, you know, so they know what's selling well and what isn't, etc. And it's been around for about 20 years. Can you believe that? 20 years already it's been around. And it's also found its way into the postal system, right? You see it now on your packages. And UPS is also using it and some of the other delivery people. Well, according to a book I have, which I was going to show you, but I'm not going to turn around. It's in my briefcase called 666, The Mark is Ready by Dr. David Weber. This UPC code is based upon the numerical formula, believe it or not, 666. Very interesting. Will the Antichrist use this? I don't know, but it's certainly interesting. 
Um, also, microchips about the size of a grain of rice are already and have been for many years implanted under the skins of animals throughout the United States and Canada in order to identify the animals in the case of a loss. You know, if you lost your little puppy dog, they can, uh, on a computer, they can do whatever and find him, find out where he is, if he's been stolen or he's lost or what, whatever. A marketing video which is produced by InfoPet of Southern California states this. It says, quote, in the past four years, thousands of animals have been implanted with microchips. The conclusive results indicate that this form of identification is both safe and effective in all species. Once implanted, all related information goes into a computer data bank that can be accessed via a toll-free 800 number from anywhere in North America. End of quote. Well, at this point in time, you know, where you and I are in history, I do not think that human implants would go over too well. You know, we're, the church is still around. I think if they started implanting, you know, as a, a means of universal identification, if they started trying to put little microchips in us or stamp us with a UPC code or something, I think that we would, there would be a social outcry, don't you? You know, it's something to replace credit cards or passports or social security cards, etc. I think this would, at this point, create a very big outcry. However, under the dictatorship of the Antichrist, you'll love this picture. It is going to be very difficult to refuse this mark because when you refuse this mark under the dictatorship of the Antichrist and the false prophet, you are basically going to be sealing your own doom unless you can manage to really get away somewhere very, very secluded. Well, what will this mark be? This is the last thing, and then I'll let you go. Verse 17 tells us that it is either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, for you and I, who speak English, it's a very strange thought. I'm losing my voice. Um, It's very strange for us to think about a name having a numerical equivalent, right? I mean, you don't think of your name as being equal to 777 or whatever, right? I want to add my name up. I never have done that. I hope it doesn't come out to 666. That'd be terrible. But anyway, in Greek and Hebrew and Latin, letters and other languages also, but these three letters do have a numerical equivalent. We know that from studying Roman numerals, right? Like the V stands for a 5, etc. So for any name, it is possible to add together the numerical value of each letter of that name. Now you can go home and do this. Let's put A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, etc. And then add up what your name comes to. And so they can arrive at a total which gives the number of that individual's name. Now the numerical value of the Antichrist's name, whatever his name will be, is going to equal 666. John, through the Holy Spirit, tells us that. It seems very apparent, then, that the Holy Spirit is purposely giving this clue so that when the Antichrist actually appears on the scene, people with wisdom enough to read and believe the Bible will actually be able to confirm his identity. Let's say they suspect this fellow who is rising up out of Europe and signing a peace treaty. And they say, we really need to confirm if he is the one so we can get our family and go somewhere, get out of here, go to the mountains. 
of North Carolina and hide, you know, in Boone somewhere. And so they can add his name um, and see if it equals 666, then they can be really, really confirmed that he is the one. And they can hightail it out of there. You see, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so the Holy Spirit was really not giving this to you and I as members of the church so that we can, you know, count up and say, well, Henry Kissinger's name adds up to 666, which it did, (laughs) but he wasn't the Antichrist. And, of course, there have been a lot of people over the years whose names have come to the equivalent of 666, but this isn't for us. We are not looking for the Antichrist. We are looking for the true Christ. Well, the number six is the number of man. Man was made on the what day? He was made on the sixth day. Six is one short of seven, and seven is the number of perfection. The number six, therefore, associates man with his imperfection apart from Christ. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but Christ is... He's an eight, okay? You'd think he was a seven, but actually he's an eight. Every time his name appears in the Bible, whether it's the Lord Jesus Christ or the or Lord Christ or Lord or Jesus Christ, there's eight different names for Jesus in the Bible. Every one of them is the equivalent. This is fascinating. Every one of them is the numerical equivalent of eight, eight, eight. You see, it takes a six with an eight to make a seven. It takes us as sinful men... We need the perfect eight, and then we can become seven. Well, eight is the number of resurrection. Anyway, I don't have time to get into that. But the three sixes together, six, 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 are probably suggestive of the unholy satanic trinity. You know, the dragon, a six, the antichrist, a six, the false prophet, a six. Six is the deification of man himself. The Antichrist will be the ultimate humanist. He is going to place an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped in the place of God. And when this man, the Antichrist, does come, those with wisdom will be able to recognize him by the number of his name. And therefore, as I said, they will very possibly we hope, be able to make swift and secret plans, if they've had advanced wisdom, to go into hiding somewhere to then await for the Lord's return. But those with true godly wisdom will not only recognize the beast by his number, but they will quickly, very quickly, do what? Surrender themselves to the Lordship of the true Christ. They will repent of their sins and they will beg the true Christ for salvation and for eternal life. And they may lose their lives, but in the eternal long run, it's going to be far better to refuse the mark of the beast and possibly suffer martyrdom and, or starvation or at least, you know, a very difficult three and a half years. It, that is far better than to take the mark and suffer torment in hell and an eternal separation from God forever. So here is wisdom. Don't, under any circumstances, take the mark of the beast. And I'm not talking to you because I hope you have really already had true, true godly wisdom and that you have already accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and you will never have to calculate any man's name because you won't be here. You'll be in heaven.